Welcome to today's podcast, which is part of the Warwick History PG podcast series. I'm Erin Geraghty, and today I'm joined by Adam Challoner and Maria Tauber. Thanks for being with us on today's podcast. Uh, so to start us off, could you both tell us a little bit about your PhD um, and how you came to be researching these super interesting topics? Uh, shall we start with you, Adam? Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, thank you for having me. And um, yeah, so I did my undergrad and my MA at the University of Liverpool. And I worked with a professor there called Mark Talsey, who's, who's, uh, who researches the history of reading in Scotland. And that's how I got into the, the history of reading, but in the American South. Now, I study this during the antebellum period. So that is roughly between 1812 and 1861. And in particular, I look at the reading vogues of this nascent southern middle class during the final two decades of that period. Now, there's a lot going on during these years that makes it particularly interesting to study. So first, we've got what's called a reading revolution in America. So basically, this means that the late 18th and 19th centuries were characterized, at least in part, by kind of these sweeping technological innovations that meant that print could be produced more cheaply and in greater quantities. So, you know, you've got um, improving national infrastructures like um, you know the modes of distribution, like railroads and canals are being improved. And we've got the invention of the penny press in around the 1830s. And this means that print can be more easily and quickly proliferated. And then alongside that, we have a rise in education standards and in particular literacy. So in short, what we've got is more books available to read and more people able to read them than ever before. Then on top of that, we have the sectional crisis. So that is kind of the, the defining characteristic of America in the 19th century. So slavery is obviously this kind of big, um, massive issue. And, you know, the country eventually fights a civil war over it. Now, it's important to note first that this kind of north-south dichotomy when it comes to slavery is a bit of an oversimplification. There are abolitionists in the south, just as there are those kind of sympathetic to slavery in the north. But for the sake of simplicity, I won't get into that too much. And we can kind of go on the basis that um, attitudes to slavery were drawn along kind of regional lines. Now, during the 18th century, plantation slavery is becoming like a really important part of southern of the southern economy. So, you know, their economy is predicated on um, cash crops such as cotton and indigo. And it's also culturally important as well, because southerners view their world very much through a kind of racial lens. And so slavery as an institution helps to sustain and legitimize these kind of identity structures that are oriented around racial modalities and biological essentialisms. So obviously then northerners took issue with this. You know, there were enormous cultural differences and they were augmented by like vast discrepancies in education standards. And it meant that the North more readily acknowledged that human bondage and the egalitarianism of the constitution were fundamentally incompatible. Now, that produces quite a bit of enmity in the press, and that is particularly one-sided because the North is obviously a lot more advanced in terms of their print cultures, so it's mainly the North taking shots at the South, but this then contributes to the development of sectional identities and eventually the outbreak of war. Now, at the centre of all of this is this nascent Southern middle class who are only just coming into being at around 1840, 1850. And, you know, defining class is always tricky and, you know, the middle class is especially hard. But the recent, the most recent kind of literature on them would define them as a class of urban professionals making up around 10% of the southern population. So, you know, they're kind of doctors and lawyers and teachers and stuff like this. And they're defined by a very distinctive set of ideological attributes. Now, I can't obviously talk like all about them right now. But of particular interest to me is the fact that they, the way in which they identify themselves ideologically is derived from northern periodicals, you know, publications that are coming out with these very conspicuously northern economic and cultural ideas. So they're big fans of accelerating the transition to industrial capitalism, for example, and they're also quite outspoken opponents of some of the more archaic elements of, of southern culture, so like dueling, for example. So 
they are quite an anomaly in the South, but it's also important to note that they're not abolitionists. You know, a lot of them think that slave labor could actually enhance the effectiveness of an industrial economy. So just as important to that is this um, idea of an ideology of literacy. So this means that a really important part of the middle class identity generally, but also in the South, was reading. And of course, not all literature is equal, and I'll talk more about that a bit later. But in general, not only did the possession of books, and particularly the um, the kind of impressive looking ones, serve as a means of articulating class identity, but an appreciation of literature was also considered a reliable marker of an individual's moral worth and refinement. So basically what we have is a, is a middle class who are more aligned ideologically to the North, but who are part of a Southern society that is routinely denigrated by Northern writers. And more than that, these guys had a cultural imperative to read, but the vast majority of the reading material came from the North and was often accompanied by all, all, all kinds of like sectional vitriol. And I think this makes for a really interesting intellectual dynamic. And in a nutshell, the point of my thesis is basically to find out what these people made of it all, you know, how they handled it and, and how they felt. That is a wonderful breakdown of your project and it sounds super interesting. Um, Maria, can we hear a bit about your project, please? Yes, of course. Um, I'm examining the influence of a range of new media on the MPs and political communication across the late early modern period. And that is, in my case, late 16th to late 18th century. Um, well, we can see a transformation of both politics and the media landscape and the development of a print culture. And within this context, I'm seeing the MP as subject of, and perhaps to, a new type of observation. I'm arguing that with the establishment of regular periodical newspapers, among other media, um, politicians had to expect to be observed by different groups outside of, outside of politics, which of course included their voters. And I'm asking whether and how they reflected on this and how consequently this affected their position, behaviour, strategies and general perception of the office of MP. And so in my MA thesis, I was working on the on communication and early modern witch trials. And I was fascinated by the role of communication and its rules. So um, basically, whether or not those involved knew how to play the game, affected the outcome and create it um, well, the story that that was told in, in the court records. And in my case, rather than the so-called self-accusation, better still suicide by cops, um, which was at the heart of my story, um, it was a complex story of power, opportunities, misunderstandings and inclusion and exclusion. Um, so I chose a similar approach to my PhD, um, but moving away from the judicial field to the political. And at that time, I was no expert at all in political history. Um, but I was curious and it allowed me to follow my interest in British history. And well, I was actually struggling um, recently to um, with this and, and I was looking for narratives why this project. And I, I, I was re I'm really irritated by the fact that I never had this one interest. And in fact, I, I believe I'd, I'd be capable of finding an interest in, in most topics, really. Um, and I have this perhaps bit romantic idea of pursuing a PhD. So there's always this fear of committing to the wrong project. Um, and I start asking myself, why uh, why this project? And what, what, why does it matter? What are the, is it just the intellectual challenge of it? And well, it's certainly not about the politicians, or is it? Um, yeah, so right, it's a big project, and I think when all of us, when we start start doing it, um, we're reading lots of secondary lit, and we're confronted with expectations from funders, supervisors. Um, so this question came up: um, Where am I in this, and where is the connection to my own life, and what does it, how does it link to my other seemingly different interests, and does it have to? Um, yeah, so I guess it's a process and a good one. Um, 
And I think it's no coincidence that this is happening at a time when historians start reflecting on the nature of the research more and how it inevitably in, in intersects with their own standpoints. And I think we're we're finally about to stop pretending that we're objective researchers without a personal history, ethnicity, or I mean, certain academic socialization. Um, yeah, which brings me back to why, why does it matter? Because I think we can still ask ask that, and um, I personally I'm constantly doing that because I'm I'm um, I'm, I'm trying to find find out why. Um, and when I started thinking about my project, the debate surrounding Brexit was at its height. Um, there's a lot of anti-elite rhetoric. Politicians were seen as liars and cheats, and still are. And well, at the same time, there's this discourse around fake news and the reliability of information in our globalised world. And to some extent, the questions posed in, in early modern societies were quite similar. And it's all about how do we deal, how do we deal with complexity, um, information overload? And what's also really interesting is um, that there seems to have been or there seems to be a structural problem of politicians not being able to fulfill the, the, the public's expectations. Um, so yeah, it might be worth um, and it might be of significance to take a closer look at how the Office of MP evolved. Yeah, that's Great, thank you. I mean, I think you really articulated the fears that we all feel about, uh, you know, undertaking a PhD in our topics. Um, and I think that parallel between the early modern MPs and today's MPs, especially in the context of the political crisis we seem to be constantly going through at the moment, is a, is a really interesting one. And I will be interested to see what you publish on that in the future. Um, so let's talk in some specifics about your projects. So um, you both consider how media interacts with and influences identity um, and in particular national identity. So Maria, you're considering the roles of early modern MPs. Uh, could you talk a little bit about their local and their national identities and the interaction between them? Um, sure, that's, um, that's an interesting one when you start looking at the MP not um, only from a Westminster perspective, but from a local and regional one too, because um, they're set in between. Um, and remember at that time, um, Parliament was called, called very infrequently and being an MP certainly brought honour, but it was also a very expensive job. And we need to ask what was an MP and when did it become a distinct idiosyncratic group? Um, MPs were also local officers, they were gentrymen of a certain family, they're caught up in relations of patronage, etc. Um, yeah, so however, if we if we want to look at them from a local and national perspective, um, there are, or with this question of um, identity in mind, there are two contrasting figures who stood for Warwick in the 1580s, um, John Fisher and Jopthrop Wharton. Um, Warwick was governed by a corporation consisting of a bailiff and, and, and 12 principal purchasers who were assisted by another 12 assistant purchasers. And John Fisher, three times MP, was one of the 12 and he served as bailiff a couple of times. He was deputy recorder, he was town clerk, uh, all in all a really active local officer and author of the Black Book of Warwick and the Book of John Fisher. Um, both containing minutes and all, all sorts of um, corporation records. Um, yeah, but he left no active engage, uh, no traces of active engagement in Parliament. And yeah, so in fact, um, the locality was always priority. Um, there was one episode when he attempted to decline the office of bailiff in 1580, quoting his many other duties, including being an MP. And he was told that where Parliament was only for a short time, and that would be possible to appoint a deputy for this period. Um, so that shouldn't be a problem at all. Um, and he was, yeah, he was a typical corporation man. Certainly, um, that certainly matched his self-description in those books as a very loyal and self-sacrificing Burgess. And Jopthrog Warden, on the other hand, um, was regarded um, as an outsider. He was a staunch Puritan with the ambition of becoming an MP, 
and he had support from many of the town inhabitants. Um, he did not live in Warwick himself. Um, however, the precondition was a uh, precondition of becoming an MP um, for, for Warwick was that he had to be a burgess of town and elected by the corporation and its assistants. And the corporation did not want him. Um, they thought his interests lay solely in Parliament, quote, where peradventure some friends of his may have some cause there, unquote. So, and worst of all, he was supported by the corporation's enemy, Richard Brooks, uh, which immediately linked this cause to a long-standing local dispute. Um, but yeah, he was really good at mobilising crowds. He had, um, probably even more important than that, uh, support from the local gentry, from um, the Earl of Leicester and the Earl of Warwick, and some really good negotiation skills. And he managed to break the consent within the corporation because he knew what to say. And then he got elected. Um, and he was a really active parliamentarian. <laughs> there are three very national and controversial speeches um, that we have. There's one against Mary, Queen of Scots. There's one on the current affairs in the Netherlands where he's meddling with the Queen's foreign policy and insulting her allies. Um, and there's one on freedom of speech in Parliament. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I, to, to give you an impression of his good rhetoric, I, I could give you a short example and quote from his speech um, right. against uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, um, helps in uh, 1586. And there he says, um, if I should term her the daughter of sedition, the mother of rebellion, the nurse of impiety, the handmaid of iniquity, the sister of unshamefulness, or if I should tell you that which you already know, that she is Scottish of nation, French of education, papist of profession, a Gizian of blood, a Spaniard in practice, a libertine in life, as all this were not to flatter her, so yet this were nothing near to describe her. And of course he wanted her dead. Yeah. That is so, that's mad. Those are some fierce words. Right now. Um, and it's an interesting element <clears throat> to uh, this idea of national identity. Um, and Adam, you're also looking at this thing, perhaps a little bit more closely in the national rather than the local. Mm -hmm. um, but you're looking at novel reading and its relation to na national identity. Can you, can you speak more to this? Yeah, sure. Um, so... America is quite unique, or not unique, but certainly interesting in the sense that they didn't really have the time for, for a national identity to develop organically, as it might have done in, say, England or France. You know, they win the revolution, and I think they even surprised themselves when, when they won that. And then all of a sudden, they have this kind of entire country, this like enormous country with no sense of self. And, and they're all just kind of like, oh, okay now what and um you know they kind of realized that they couldn't coast on the inertia of the revolution indefinitely you know they eventually they had to fashion an identity that was more than just a legal document in the constitution and the way they tried to do that was through literature so they believed that an independent literary tradition you know this kind of sacred canon of books that kind of captures what it means to be american was the best way to manufacture this identity. But the problem was, and in very typical American fashion, they were quite conspiratorial about it. <clears throat> so they kind of really firmly believed that some kind of foreign or kind of internal but ideologically subversive agent was out to poison this kind of embryonic identity. You know, first, this enemy was Great Britain. And people were afraid that there was this kind of grand British conspiracy to recolonize America. And they were sure that British books were part of that plot. So, you know, British books contained British identity paradigms. And they believed that in coming to America and in American readers reading these books, they would make them British again. And so a load of kind of American periodicals are very suddenly like, no, you know, stop reading British books they'll make you hate America and all of this. Sound familiar? And, um, you know, these conspiracies go through another stage or two before eventually, you know, the penny drops and the North and South are suddenly like, 
oh, you were the enemy all along. Okay. And there's this really cool example of this. in um, So in 1852, we've got an author, a northern author called Harriet Beecher Stowe, who publishes this kind of brutal anti-slavery novel called Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it basically portrays southern planters like really badly. And people in the south are like fuming about it, not only because it, they're insulted, but also because it kind of works. So like there's one historian called um, Barbara Hockman who found a letter from a girl from South Carolina who, and I quote, says, um, Eliza read it through in a day and has halfway become an abolitionist from it. So this novel is actually really powerful in kind of changing the hearts and minds of people and, and their attitudes towards slavery. So the South respond with this kind of deluge of something called anti-Tom literature, which are basically just kind of rip-offs of the original Uncle Tom's Cabin. You know, one is called um, Aunt Phyllis's Cabin, for example, and it just tries to redress all of these insults and the negative press that slavery is getting. So what we have then is this kind of um, rhetorical prelude to the Civil War in which the North and the South have developed these kind of sectional, uh, sectional identities in their attempts to foster a national identity. And they just kind of hail and abuse at each other through fiction. And that, I think, makes for a really interesting environment in which to study the intellectual lives of ordinary readers in the South, and particularly those readers who are caught in the middle of it in the, um, in the Southern middle class. Amazing. That is so fascinating. Um, uh, and we're definitely going to come uh, back to that point you made about readers in a moment. Uh, Maria, <clears throat> you considered the role of the new media of print newspapers, uh, especially in extending political communication and disseminating more information about members of parliament to the public. Um, this is something you've already mentioned. Um, can you talk a bit more about the way print was used by politicians um, and what this kind of new political communication looks like, how, how they interacted with it? Yes, um, yeah, so from the 1620s, um, roughly, the circulation of different types of print news became integral, an integral part of politics and news were very popular in the 17th century. So um, what news or quelle nouvelle um, became a common greeting and that in itself suggests that news were not only available through print, but um, yeah, oral communication and all, all sorts of uh, different types of media. Um, but parliamentary debates specifically enter the world outside Westminster through separates and in news, newsletters, um, first in manuscripts, and then um, later they were printed and reprinted as well. Um, and whole parliamentary proceedings were printed between 1641 and 1660, and they continued after that. It continued to circulate in manuscripts, so the information was out. Um, daily votes had been printed during the session crisis, so um, 1679 to 81, um, and then from 1771, um, parliamentary debates were printed routinely. And of course, before that, they circulated in manuscript and they were often circulated by MPs themselves and that continued parallel to the to print. Um, well and in fact it was often quicker um, in manuscript form and less censored. Uh, however, the printing of these debates happened on a larger scale and perhaps in a different more official type of dissemination so um, and it, it meant, I think, that the way in which it was used also changed or was different. So this comes with the establishment of a press market, competition, a certain infrastructure, our clubs, coffee houses. And so during the periods I'm investigating, um, more information becomes available um, to different people outside politics and politicians began began to make use of this um but generally the success of these media was in no way certain in an environment that was highly secretive for a reason um 
and the pre-publication of, of censorship, the pre-publication censorship was, was still in place until not 1695, so, and, the, and other restrictions continued. So it wasn't a straightforward development towards the freedom of the press, and it, it came in waves. Um, there was particular stress on decorum and control in times of perceived crisis. Um, and it certainly brought um, disruptions, and to illustrate possible disruptions um, on a more local level in, in, in this example, um, I want to return to John Fisher and local political communication here. So um, the main function of the corporation, um, local authorities, government was to maintain order and reproduce hierarchies. So it's fair to assume that the very concept of politics changed throughout history. And that's why we look at it as historians. Um, everything was always personal and every interaction was personal. Um, which made it prone to violence. So in the Black Book Warwick, there are numerous incidents where Burgess had to sort out their personal quarrels first before a session could start. And there were fights um, um, where they had to defend their honour. And very often the local gentry um, had to act as arbiters um, in those cases. Um, yeah, so <laughs> basically the important, the, this, this brings out the importance of consensus and performance <clears throat> to make sure decisions were accepted. accepted. Um, and of course, those performances reflected people's roles in hierarchies through clothes and symbols, etc. Um, well, and presence, being present, of course, was, was, was really important too. And when we look at those procedures, um, processes were really very lengthy and fragile, and a simple no um, was very dis disruptive, could be very disruptive. Um, there was one example where um, there's been a dispute uh, between the 12 Burgesses and their assistants, and one of the Burgesses, John Green, um, left the room to show disagreement, um, and therefore the whole session had to be delayed. Um, the assistant called back on a different day, and Green's absence again was noted. Um, and the assistants were reminded of the disorder they they caused. Um, so next, um, a written document was produced for everyone to sign. Um, but still, another meeting was required. And this this last meeting was set during the ceremony of evening prayer, and it contained um, the swearing of an oath. Um, and the open apology from Green and all Burgesses promising to maintain unity. And that was that was vital for the outcome and for everyone involved to, to accept the final decision. Um, so, yeah, this simple decision took days and weeks because it had to be delayed again and again. Um, another incident um, where an, an, an unexpected refusal to take office as bailiff, office as bailiff um, needed preparations um, a year in advance to, to um, elect a new bailiff. So yeah, this whole system was really fragile and you can imagine that new media entering it and new, more information being available, new participants entering, um, it posed a real threat to the system. Um, and I'm toying with the idea of um, rising complexity um, through the introduction of new media. And as a result of that, both politicians and readers um, having to deal with this and, and finding strategies to um, to still be able to go about their business and, and cope with the rising complexity. Great. I mean, it sounds as if new media um, help, uh, helped and hindered. <laughs> um, kind of continuing on with this idea, Adam, you're looking at the novel as um, an innovation in new media. Um, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about the novel, um, how it was perceived by the American public and, and media at the time. Yeah, I mean, so <clears throat> the, the novel as a particular genre actually predates my research by almost a century. So the first novel, as we'd understand it today, was Pamela by Samuel Richardson. And I think that was published in 1740, possibly. 
Um, but for the reasons I talked about earlier, the rise of the American novel doesn't occur until a little bit later. Now, crucially, the novel was kind of defined by a number of, of very distinctive attributes that set it apart from earlier forms of fiction. And probably the biggest one of these was this idea of formal realism. And to give you a very kind of quick and oversimplified explanation, that, that basically means the the novel was viewed as an authentic portrait of the human experience. So through a kind of series of narratological and generic innovations, it, it legitimized individual subjectivities and sensory perceptions of truth. Now, this is like so important because to produce a work of fiction is essentially right to create a new world. And often it, it's quite far removed from our own, from reality. And so to read fiction and novels in particular is to inhabit that world, you know, like for a very brief moment, you know, from the moment you pick that book up to the moment you put it down again, the chasm between reality and fantasy is effaced almost entirely. And we as readers are invited into that world, not as a dispassionate observer, but as an emotional participant. You know, we feel everything that happens to the protagonist. Now, why does that matter? Well, as readers, I think we like to make ourselves feel at home. And in particular, we like to appropriate meaning from books. Now, this is what, like, this is my, like, bread and butter in terms of research interest. But I haven't gone to the archive yet, so I don't have any direct evidence of this in action. But I can give you a, a very contemporary example in, um, in Harry Potter. So, you know, J.K. Rowling created this world and millions of people just kind of completely fell in love with it, right? Um, you know, she, she leans quite heavily on these themes of belonging, and spoke to a lot of people across the world who felt out of place or alone. So we fall in love with that world and we want like we want so desperately to inhabit it. And we do for a time, but but that isn't enough because we as readers, we always want more. We want it to relate more closely than it already does to our subjective experience. And that's exactly what we make it do. Now, I've got to point out that there are limits to this process. So the writer created this world and we as readers and as interpretative agents are obliged to operate within the parameters determined by the writer. So Harry Potter is a story about a young lad who goes to a magic school that is like inescapable. But those parameters are necessarily broad. You can't create an entire world and make it completely inflexible and airtight. And, you know, that that's the beauty of reading fiction. I think it, it's malleable and it leaves a lot of room for us as readers to maneuver so what we do is we we take these certain kind of canonical ambiguities these gaps in the story and we fill them so a good example would be Hermione who I think is never explicitly mentioned as white and so a lot of black and minority ethnic readers for example might reimagine her as a character of color even though I'm pretty sure that's not what Rowling intended when she wrote it. So in much the same way, there is a lot of fan fiction out there in which Harry and Draco get together, for example, or you know Hagrid and Filch. And that's because more LGBTQ plus representation would make that world more meaningful and more personal for a lot of people. Now, this is true of all fiction, you know, the rise of the novel didn't create that first generation of readers who took more from a book than they should have done. But what it did do is legitimize these appropriations. So it validated individual subjectivities and this in turn encouraged readers to like circumvent authorial intent and appropriate meaning not as an act of rebellion, but as their readerly prerogative. You know, the novel asserted the primacy of the individual interpretation and in that way allowed readers to claim some degree of ownership over that world. <clears throat> now in terms of my research and 19th century America 
I'm probably unlikely to find such an explicit example of that. But it's the concept that I'm interested in primarily, you know, the the fundamental premise of, of my research and what I'm interested in is this idea that the books that antebellum southerners read, you know, the worlds that they choose to inhabit, and by extension, that you know, the subtle little appropriations that they make to make those worlds more inhabitable and to make it speak more effectively to their subjective experience can tell us an awful lot about how individual readers negotiated the matters of national and regional identity and the kind of increasing disunion between the two. Amazing. Uh, I want to continue talking about the readers for, for a moment, um, or rather this point that you made, Adam, of how readers are responding to and interpreting um, media. So, um, Maria, can you possibly talk a little bit about how readers um, are interpreting or rather managing uh, the news to make sense of it and this relationship between politician, press, readers? <clears throat> Yeah, um, absolutely. There was a need to manage news because, first of all, they were notoriously unreliable. Um, manuscripts still remain popular for a reason. Um, the mechanisms we have today to establish reliability origin were not in place. And of course, there was no such a thing as uh, copyright. Um, so basically, they were uh, many of the publishers, writers, reading readers were transfer transferring um, characteristics of oral communication into written or printed um, media, for example, um, to make a to prove your contents, you'd quote um, or you'd say you heard um, your information, or you got your information from from an honourable man, or you seen it with your own eyes. Um, dialogue was often um, used to make it more um, reliable in a way. Um, and this was these techniques, all of this was paired with a general doubt um, entering society through the new science and cosmology, empiricism, um, with this emphasis on vision. Um, so readers um, start to develop verifying techniques of, for example, comparing or diary keeping, um, drawing of historical parallels. Um, not only to verify the news, but also to discover the real hidden interest behind political actions. So, um, in a way, the language of politics that, that came with it is really interesting because it is one of deceit and dissimulation. And in early Stuart England, um, seeing like a politic, according to Noah Millstone, um, became a way of observing which was grounded in suspicion. Um, and that's, of course, really interesting when we think about um, politicians then observing these observations and, and what, what, what are they doing with it? Um, well, in governments and party politicians were using the media too for propaganda, printed petitions, especially during, sex, during the succession crisis in the 1680s. Um, and, well, in terms of politicians using the media, the, probably one of the most popular examples is um, the Middlesex MP journalist, John Wilkes, um, in the 1750s and 60s, um, with his very radical demands for freedom of press, rights of electors and liberties of, um, of the subjects. And he was supported by uh, lots of clubs and popular groups um, to the point where, where in a way, um, politics became a commodity and certain um, views became or were associated with with, a, with forms of dress, types of food or drink um, in the civil wars, whether you drink beer or wine could be a very political thing. Um, but yeah, so this this um, this sort of trend increased. Um, and in, in the works case, uh, especially um, there's the number 45, um, which was the number of a highly controversial issue um, of the North Britain, the publication used by Wilkes to attack the head of government. Um, and it became a symbol of revolutionary activity with the mop. Um, and it's it's very interesting because this number can be found um, on various items like teapots or doors. And um, so this is the sort of political culture evolving around um, 
those newspapers and, and politicians and, and publishers. Well, by the 18th century, um, the press culture was firmly established, one could say, um, I guess, and there were regular newspapers. Um, and from the 1700s, there were provincial periodicals as well. Um, so this inevitably caused or um, formed a new relationship between politicians and the press. And this came with certain problems and um, the struggles that came or that were part of this, associated with this, were recognised by Edmund Burke, um, the Bristol MP in the 1780s, um, who was justifying his action, uh, previous actions as a politician in a speech delivered at the Guildhall in Bristol in 1780. And it's really interesting because he realises that he cannot please every one of his constituents. Um, and he says, the very attempt towards pleasing everybody discover, discovers a temper always fleshy and often false and insincere. Um, and he reflects on the nature of, M of the MP's position. Um, he talks of we and of suffering, a great detriment by being open to every talker. Um, and he goes on saying, it is not to be imagined how much of service is lost from spirits full of activity and full of energy who are pressing, who are rushing forward to great and capital objects when you oblige them to be continually, continually looking back. Um, so, yeah, and he's, he's reminding his audience that uh, being a politician is a very complicated task and it um, involves examining uh, situations in detail and it's not possible to focus on everything. Um, well, in coming back to the question of national identity we raised earlier, um, it's very interesting that he speaks of a danger or the danger of degrading the national representation into a confused, scuffling bustle of a local agency, of local agency, sorry. Um, when ideas are narrowed and mere local representatives uh, were not permitted to act upon larger issues. So in other words, basically, um, those were the same accusations against Rob Morton in the 1580s, and they continued to be made by many towns up until the late 18th century, who wanted their representatives to be exactly that and fulfil um, the town's needs and, and stand up for the town. So interesting. <clears throat> and again, more parallels as you're speaking with uh, today's politicians, which I thought is very interesting to um, to consider. Um, now, in a kind of different way, Adam, you are looking at the response to reading novels. Um, I know that's the section you're kind of working on at the moment. Um, and in particular, the medicalization of novel reading and the negative perceptions about uh, novels in literary discourse, you know, seem very damaging as to readers. Can you tell us more? Yeah. Um, and it's exactly for the reasons I talked about before, you know, so a lot of novels are kind of like really morally ambiguous. So, you know, we get, for example, a protagonist who is a robber, but who is kind of portrayed as like this kind of kind-hearted, nice guy. And the fella who's chasing him, like the police officer, he's like the bad guy. And like, he's like not a very nice person. So, and you know, the novel legitimizes the, these appropriations that they're making. So the, it, what, it, what it does essentially is cause this inversion of morality. To, to frame good as bad and bad as good and obviously this is bad so what ha what happens is the um the effect of novel reading are medicalized so in other words the kind of validation of that subjective interpretation that we talked about earlier and the accompanying moral ambiguities are reframed as a symptom of a disease and are in turn kind of invalidated. And, you know, during the antebellum period, there's a lot going on to make these claims hit home particularly hard. You know, there's a massive health reform movement with ties to Christianity, you know, there's something called um, muscular Christianity, which um, encouraged like regular exercise as part of a good Christian lifestyle. And basically what they're doing is they're selling this big medical conspiracy to a reading public who are already quite concerned about their health. 
And the way they do it is also quite interesting. So they actually relate it to a very kind of relevant condition in alcoholism. So there's an increasingly popular temperance movement in operation at this time. So, for example, in 1822, one magazine argued that the habit of novel reading is almost as enervating as the use of opium or of spiritous liquors. Um, and you know, in the South as well, you've got the, um, the Southern Literary Messenger who are saying that the excitement of novel reading is akin to intoxication. When it subsides, it leaves the mind collapsed and imbecile without the capacity or the inclination for active exertion. Now, the majority of these ideas are directed towards women and women are considered the most prolific novel readers and thus the most vulnerable. And in fact, around this time, there are some women, not a lot, but enough, you know, who are actually committed to like an actual insane asylum. And the reason that it's provided is novel reading. So, for example, in the um, in the Bloomingdale Insane Asylum in New York, there are three women in there for that particular reason. Now, this obviously isn't the norm. And what you get most of the time is just like overt advice saying novel reading is bad. Don't do it or we'll lobotomize you. Or we get like kind of stories or, or parables, you know, cautionary tales. And there's one story in a woman's magazine and it's about this woman called Rebecca. So Rebecca just got married and she's dead happy. You know, she's a perfect, beautiful wife. Everything is great but not for long because, and notice the medical terminology here, she contracted a fondness for novel reading. And that's when things go south. So before where she kept, you know, the house tidy and a fella entertained, she was doing none of that now because she's like so engrossed in this novel. And she knows that it's bad because at one point she says, um, oh, I am driven to them as the inebriate to his cups to drown troubles. But, like, she can't stop. She's, like, addicted. And it doesn't end well, it doesn't end, um, well for her either because a husband who, like, apparently just can't deal with an untidy house goes on this, like, massive bender because he's so upset, staggers drunk into the woods and freezes to death. And then, like, completely inexplicably as well, Rebecca dies too. And it's meant to kind of show that novel reading is absolutely an illness and a potentially terminal one at that. And just to show you how ubiquitous these ideas were in the American press, there's another story like that in a kid's magazine. So this one tells the story of a young girl called Louisa, who's walking home from school with a friend. And in a lot of juvenile literature during the 19th century, you'll find that you usually have like a good character you know, this kind of um, paragon of virtue and propriety and a foil character to whom they are um, juxtaposed. And this is meant to make the kind of moral of the story just like abundantly clear. So in this case, Louisa is the foil character and she's bragging to a mate about how many novels she reads per week. And more than that, she, she, she says like, oh, my mum doesn't actually let me read them, but I do it in secret. And a mate is all kind of like sanctimonious about it. So she's like, well, maybe you should listen to your mum because, you know, she's an adult and she knows better. But Louisa is like, you know, girl, come on. I know what I'm doing. Uh, spoiler alert, she doesn't know what she's doing. <laughs> so she goes home and that night she's like enthralled by this latest novel. So much so that she doesn't actually realise she left the window open. And it's the middle of winter, conveniently. So in the end, she catches this, like, violent cold, almost dies, and only gets better after she admits to her mum that she's been reading novels behind her back. Now, this obviously makes a broader point about how kind of deference to parental authority is really important and all that. But again, it, it reinforces this association between novel reading and illness. Like, if you read novels, you can get seriously ill and die. And as I said before, this is all meant to invalidate those subjectivities to which the novel gives credence. You know, it, 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 the message is very much, this isn't normal. You know, this is a symptom of a very serious illness. Please 
get help essentially um yeah that is so interesting um and quite shocking actually um that novels were perceived in that way they're such a staple of uh, our societies uh, today um both of your projects sound so interesting and I'm actually really looking forward to seeing how they evolve and grow and seeing um, how you uh, write up these amazing ideas that you've been having and this uh, evidence that you've been looking at. Um, so I'm afraid that is all we have time for at the moment. But just before we finish, I did want to ask both of you um, what you're doing during this global pandemic to uh, keep yourself sane, uh, lockdowns, eat lockdown is easing um uh, what is it tomorrow uh, but i i was just wondering what are you um what are you both up to at the moment to kind of keep yourselves uh, busy and sane adam um not much um you know i went to lockdown thinking like i'd learn to bake i'd learn another language you know write a novel all that and none of it happened um <laughs> no um like I I'm quite lucky in that I live in a particularly kind of green area of Liverpool. So I like to go walking in the woods. Um, you know, sometimes those walks turn into runs and then very quickly turn back into walks again. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I've, I've had a lot more time to just kind of walk and read and, and enjoy my time. So yeah, it, it's not been completely terrible, to be honest. Yeah, that's great. Maria, what about you? Oh, oh, I totally agree. Uh, exercise saved me. Um, now we're allowed back onto the trek because I'm, I'm a sprinter, um, so that's good. Um, it's the creative side, embracing my creative side and doing creative work as well. Um, I what kept me sane really. I um, I was involved in in, in post production for a short film that we um, finished shooting just before lockdown happened. Um, and I'm acting in a web series um, that's entirely, yeah, entirely um, recorded from home or socially distanced. Um, but yeah, that's, that's fun to just keep me busy. When can we expect to see that? Just quick plug for, uh, for this little project, side project. The, the web series online, actually, you can find it on YouTube. It's called Interlocked. Great. Yeah. Wonderful. I will be looking forward to looking at that. Uh, later maybe the yeah. evening uh, evening thing to do <laughs> uh, well massive thank you to my guests Adam Chaloner and Maria Tauber for joining me today um, it's been so good listening to your projects um, and the points you're raising at the moment and we wish you the best best moving forward um, and to our listeners thank you for taking the time to listen and support this episode goodbye thanks Aaron thank you <laughs>